This is Bonjour Chai, the Plan B from Olam Haba edition. I'm Avi Fangold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto. And joining me in Montreal, David Sklar in the flesh. I'm back. We are your Frozen Chosen. Today's show is all about the renewed debate around abortion. We will be speaking with Goldie Morgenthaler about her father, the groundbreaking activist for abortion rights, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. And I have a conversation with Rabbi Daniel Korupkin of the Bayit in Toronto. First, Alana, David, how are you guys doing? It's beautiful outside, but I'm still recuperating. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to need like one or two more weeks before I'm a human again after my show. Because you're, yeah, you're just coming right off this show. Do you, do you have that lull sometimes actors feel where they feel like they have nothing else to going on once they finish a really great show? How, how are you feeling emotionally, Alana? Very depressed. <laughs> That's spot on. It's really hard. It's like you build this whole family and then it's just done. And you don't have your outlet, you don't have your character and your routine, and it's just like this whole other world. So I'm uh, experiencing a lot of mourning and loss, but at the same time, it is super beautiful outside, so that is heightening my spirits, and I'm trying to spend as much time as I can outdoors. Um, Speaking of shows, we have our uh, first live show coming up. It is uh, a live recording of Bonjour Chai in partnership with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation on Wednesday, May 25th, uh, we will be recording live on Zoom, and you can register and uh, come see us uh, put it together, how the show comes together with all of the producer stuff and the little edits and the talks. Uh, We're going to try to minimize those for a live show, but we are going to have a lot of fun, and it's going to be fascinating. No, because that is the full experience. You know, when producer Michael comes in and says, wait, 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 hold on, we got to redo that. Is any of that going to be happening on the live show? Uh, It might, because it's live, and we don't know what happens. (laughs) Right. Is, is, is David going to break character? Is Alana going to go and, you know, break out into song, perhaps? Maybe. We, we never know. When, me, I'm when the one that breaks out into that song on this that show. We will put a link to it in the show notes, uh, but it is the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, the uh, CRRF-FCRR.ca. Um, and go there to register um, Wednesday, May 25th at 7 p.m. The other thing that I want to talk about uh, very briefly is uh, we got a lot of reader responses about Mother's Day. Mm. Uh, everybody felt the need to tell us, rightfully so, about the history of Mother's Day. Um, did you guys do the research on Mother's Day, Alana? How, how was your uh, Mother's I Day? I was research? in a show. I would love to hear what the what the listeners have to say. Well, it's it's fairly easy. It's all over the web. It's not like it needed a lot of digging. Uh, but a briefly, I mean, this goes back to 1907 when a woman named Anna Jarvis held a worship service to honor mothers at her church in West Virginia. Um, but she herself, um, to you know, came along to my point of view, which she at some point rejected the hallmartification mm. of the holiday. She wanted it to bring it back to its religious roots. She liked the idea of it being a worship service and not just this you know casual day. Um, but that is uh, the history of Mother's Day, and uh, I think so. That's it is wonderful. religious. Yeah, you know that's therefore uh, more problematic. Absolutely. Potentially, we can in- embrace it as our own. We can can take it back, bring it back to the core roots of the Jewish values of honoring your mother. Sure. And uh, make it live. You know, I have uh, I have the most Jewish story about Mother's Day, though. A friend of mine who had just gotten married and uh, his uh, father called his spouse and uh, wished her a happy future Mother's Day, oh. which is about as offensive as it gets because they a were lot of pregnant and, and horrible. And he was <laughs> rightfully offended by this. And he calls his parents back up and says, hey, you know, as long as we're wishing each other future simchas, you know, happy future yurtzeit, dad. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's harsh. <laughs> As a way to sort of like remind him what that pressure actually feels like. Oh, God. And that might tie very well into our um, topic of the day. 
Okay. Um, speaking of which, um, without further ado, let's go to our interview with Dr. Goldie Morgenthaler right after we hear from our sponsors. <laughs> From award-winning journalist Marsha Lederman comes Kiss the Red Stairs, a compelling memoir of Holocaust survival, intergenerational trauma, divorce, and discovery that will guide readers through several lifetimes of monumental change. Marsha was five when a simple question led to a horrifying answer. She asked her mother why she didn't have any grandparents. Her mother told her the truth, the Holocaust. Decades later, her parents dead and herself a mother to a young son, Marsha begins to wonder how much history has shaped her own life. Reeling in the wake of a divorce, she craves her parents' help. But in their absence, she is gripped by a need to understand the trauma they suffered, and she begins her own journey into the past to tell her family stories of loss and resilience. Kiss the Red Stairs, available now wherever books are sold. So at the center of the abortion debate in Canada, one name looms large, that of Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, the Canadian doctor who fought for these rights, performed abortions when it wasn't legal to do so, and was arrested and jailed for these actions. It would not be an understatement to say that the Canadian legal framework around abortion would not be the same if not for his work. Joining us to discuss his work and his legacy is his daughter, Goldie Morgenthaler. Dr. Morgenthaler is a professor of literature at the University of Lethbridge, where she joins us from today. Goldie, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Hi, thank you. Putting aside uh, the Jewish view on abortion for the moment, I, I can't help but see your father's activism as profoundly Jewish, right? Doing the work that you believe in, despite fierce opposition and in the face of personal sanctions, is something that I see mirrored right, throughout Jewish history. Can you tell us a bit about how your father approached this? Well, I, I think that's true, that activism was in his blood, as it were, because um, he came from a Bundist family in, in Lodz in Poland. And his father was a city councillor for the Bund party. Uh, and uh, the father paid quite dearly for that because when the Nazis marched into Lodz to, well, to Poland and into Lodz, the, the father was arrested almost immediately. And even before they set up a ghetto, um, my father's father, my grandfather was, was arrested and tortured in prison. And then um, he and the other Bundes who they caught uh, were marched out uh, just to a field outside the city and shot. The, the notion that, uh, you know, the, uh, the Bund was a very idealistic in many ways uh, organization, uh, very popular, um, remarkably popular uh, between the two world wars, especially in Poland. Uh, it were, they fought for workers' rights. And I think, um, my father idealized and idolized his father um, and was obviously very traumatized when his father was shot. He would have been a teenager, uh, probably about 16 years old then. So um, in that sense, he's carrying on the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of um, ideals that were implanted in him uh, by the Jewish Socialist Bund. So it, it wasn't really surprised that he um, he was drawn to activism when he settled in Montreal. And then I'm curious, when he did arrive in Canada, what sort of was the beginning 
interest for him in pursuing abortion rights in Montreal when he set up his clinic? Was there uh, a direct connection between his time surviving in the Holocaust? I don't think so. I think what happened, he had a few causes uh, before uh, he hit on abortion. Uh, he was, for instance, he had a campaign. Uh, it was it was not uncommon uh, when I was going to school in in Montreal for children, especially boys, to get their hands whacked with rulers, and there was corporal punishment. So my father um, led a campaign against that. Uh, he had another cause, I've forgotten what it is, but that one I, I definitely remember. And I think he started doing abortions because he gave an interview on CBC radio, I, I guess, um, in favor of a woman's right to choose. And then because he was a doctor, he started getting women begging him um, to do abortions on them. And, and it was illegal. Right. So at first he said no. Uh, he refused because he was afraid of what would happen. And uh, but I think eventually he started to rethink that position and he started doing them, even though it was illegal. So I know he had a lot of pushback throughout his career and uh, on the other side, a lot of praise. I'm curious if you have any recollection of what the Jewish community's reaction to his work was at the time that he was, you know, getting thrown into jail because of all the amazing work that he was doing and just about abortion in general. Like, what was the community's take on that issue? You know, I, I can't really answer that. I mean, first of all, Jewish community is not homogeneous. So I, I don't know. Um, I can't speak for all of them. I know that. Um, People who were close to us, especially his cousin, who actually sponsored um, my father to come over to Canada, uh, was very upset because she thought that uh, she, she kept saying, what does he need this for? You know, it was that kind of, um, why is he doing this? He's going to end up in trouble. You know, that, that kind of attitude. Um, and so... What I was aware of was not that people were condemning him for what he was doing, but that they were worried um, that it was going to get him into trouble and possibly also that it would reflect on the larger community. Although I don't know that for a fact. Um, I think most of the comments I heard, um, and you have to realize I was very young still at the time, so I didn't hear everything, um, were, were about him personally and what could happen to him. And of course, um, it, what could happen happened. People were, were right to be worried, I think. So I'm, you know, I'm always fascinated by this uh, idea, you know, that there was anti-Semitism um, directed against him because he was a Jewish uh, doctor and performing, you know, uh, and performing abortions, which, you know, were, were against the law. Um, but Back then, I find that there's there still is today, right, a strong Jewish threat opposing abortion, and certainly like even more so probably then. Um, but this made him the choice, the the target of these anti-choice activists, right? Uh, without them realizing that there were many Jews that were on their side of the debate, and yet they were able to paint this anti-Semitism. Can you just tell us a little bit about what this, um, what it felt like, or what it was for him to have to be the target of anti-Semitism, um, especially or even or despite of being a secular uh, Jew, when he was still very much identified as somebody that was Jewish? Um, can you fill us in a little bit on that? Um, well, as I told Michael when he asked me to come on this I was out of the country for most of that fight so I really um, I know 
very little about that. Um, my impression has always been that Jews, in fact, as a, on the whole, were not against abortion. On the contrary, because uh, I, I, from what I understand, the the um, the Torah and the Talmud are very vague about laws restricting abortion, and so my understanding has always been that, according to most Jews, to conservative Jews, Reform Jews, I don't know about Orthodox. Um, a child is is not a child until it's born, yeah, I think... until it's literally uh, separated from the mother. So I, most of the women in particular who helped my father and who marched with him were Jewish. I, you know, and, and they, some of them like Judy Rebick became big activists. So I, I wasn't really aware that the Jewish community um, as a whole was... Um, no, I wouldn't say as a whole. I think you're 100% right. I think, as you said, there is no single Jewish community, but you see it a lot in the Orthodox um, circles. Uh, more, you know, definitely now, I think that if you look historically back, that that was the case beforehand oh. where um, society was much more aligned against that. And they were uh, saying, well, Judaism says that it's still not something that you should do except for in extreme cases. And now um, what you see is where, and, you know, we don't really have to discuss this as much because it's not really related to the topic, um, but there are people on the right, especially in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities that will go and say, well, it's allowed, but we really should, you know, constrain it because we want to make sure that uh, this isn't about, you know, what they call on-demand abortion, which is, you know, code for, you know, um, something else. And so, you know, I've always seen that there is a spectrum of Jewish belief around this, even though my opinions and other people's opinions might be aligned um, with him. But I still find that um, it interesting that there were people who were not able to see this and to say, oh, you know, religious groups are, um, you know, also there are religious groups that are opposed to it. But, you know, I guess uh, I'm still curious about like how that anti-Semitism played itself out, um, whether he felt the anti-Semitism as something that was just there because he happened to be Jewish or whether he really saw it as something where these activists are pushing back at him and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong and Jews are wrong as a result of that. I remember his anger was usually against Catholics, um, a lot of whom <laughs> obviously uh, were very much against him and especially um, th there was one man, I think he was, uh, his background was Polish, and they had arguments all the time in the press and the media. But I should tell you that my father looked very Jewish. And so there was, and he was experiencing anti-Semitism in Canada long before uh, he started doing abortions. And he seemed... Um, I remember seeing some of his hate mail and some of it was clearly anti-Semitic. I mean, there was one that I remember that basically, a car, it was a cartoon, it was a caricature, caricature of him. Um, and he's sitting on a toilet and he's shitting gold. And in case he didn't get what he was doing, it was labeled gold. And these came um, anonymously. Right. And he thought he, he actually got a kick out of them. I mean, so there's a whole bunch of them. That's the only one I remember, I guess, for obvious reasons. Um, but it was um, I remember incidents when I was a, a child. You know, we were once denied. Um, we were in the Laurentians 
and my father, uh, we had needed a place to stay for the night. My, and we stopped at this nice place and it said vacancies. My father went in to ask about a room and I stayed in the car with my mother and my brother. And he came out about 10 minutes later and he was furious. He said, they say they have no rooms. And I told him that they have a sign that says vacancies. And um, my mother turned to him right away and she said, it's because we're Jewish, right? So um, that kind of reaction, and I, I'll just tell you another anecdote that I that was seared in my brain, also had nothing to do with abortion. But um, when I was older, when I was in high school, and then when I was in college and I came back for the summer, if his secretary was sick, I would he would ask me to sit in and I would sit in the middle of the waiting room. All I had to do was answer calls. Um, so one day, and he would come out and ask for the next patient to come in. So he did that himself. So when he came out, everyone sitting in the waiting room could see him. So one day he did this, this, he was not doing abortions. He was a GP, a general practitioner. So one day he came out, he asked for the next patient. He went into the, his office where the next patient closed the door. And suddenly this couple that had been sitting waiting to see him, came up to me and asked, Est-ce que le médecin juif uh, is the doctor Jewish? And I said, we, and, and they just left. Wow. And all, all that was required was that they took one look at him. They didn't ask him anything. They didn't talk to him. They just, boom. So I think by the time he was doing abortions and he was getting all kinds of hate mail, I think it didn't, from what I could tell, I mean, as I say, I wasn't around that much. From what I could tell, it didn't upset him that much. And I don't think he differentiated very much between what was um, making fun of him because he was Jewish or because he was killing babies. I uh, there said- was, I, I see now that I'm thinking of it, there, I think there were a number of cartoons um, basically saying that he was doing what Hitler had done, uh, that kind of language. But I, I really don't remember it that well. I know you said you were out of the country for, for much of the struggles and tribulations your father was, was going through. Did, did he ever share any of his feelings at the time? Did he ever express anything, his worries or his concerns to you or to the family directly? Not that I remember. He probably did more to my brother because my brother was more around. Um, I, I was at college and then I was at university. So I sort of heard a lot of this uh, secondhand. I'm, I'm curious with everything that's going on in the U.S. right now, and I know it doesn't affect us immediately. What does that bring up in you? Have you been involved at all um, in your father's activism or with his clinic? Um, or is it something that you just kind of witness from the outside and think about, you know, what would he have done? in his time. Well, what's amazed me is, you know, um, somebody just emailed me this morning that apparently there's a big article in the Montreal Gazette today Mm -hmm. about the park. So this park, the the idea of naming a, first of all, it was supposed to be a street originally. Um, That came up long ago, if I'm not mistaken, it was in January. And um, Mm -hmm. the young man who was uh, moving this got in touch with me. Um, asked me if I would um, agree, and I said yes, and I told him to talk to my brother and to my father's widow, 
And he has been sending out news releases, you know, trying to get people interested in this issue, which, I, you know, if so, so the only people who paid attention was the little local newspaper of, um, I, I think it's called Tetraville, that, that part mm -hmm. of town. Yep. Uh, so I, you know, and they interviewed me, but, but, and I kept asking him, is anyone else picking this up? Is anyone else interested? No, no, suddenly with what's going on in the States, everyone's interested, you know, and you, you think, well, are Canadians like how, how dependent we are on what's going on south of the border? It's just amazing to me. Like just the past few days, I've had requests, you know, like, so where was everybody before? <laughs> so, I, I mean, in that sense, I think it's interesting that what goes on in the States has such an enormous effect on us. And also one of the reasons my father did decide to uh, listen to all the women who were asking him uh, to do abortions was uh, because of Roe v. Wade. Right. He's when I, I do remember that, that when that law changed in, in the States, um, he couldn't stop talking about it. He was very excited. And um, and I think shortly after that, he, he started doing abortions. The park where they, they want to set up the, the park in the East End of Montreal, I believe it's actually quite close to the clinic where he practiced for, for many years in yeah. the East End of Montreal. Yes, it's a tiny park. I mean, it's a parklet. It's not really a park. <laughs> it's like a you know a sort of walk through block. If you, if you ask From me, what I can see. Lionel Gru would be a better space to rename here, to, here. Uh, to that uh, to Dr. Morgenthaler uh, uh, Avenue or Metro Station or something like that. Um, but I guess you take what you can and uh, you get uh, you get what you get and you don't get upset maybe or something like that. Um, so That's you do right. feel <laughs> you take what you can. Um, but it is a beautiful legacy, I think, that, you know, sometimes it's better late than never, but uh, the fact that he is being recognized, I think, is still a beautiful um, tribute and a touching uh, moment that, uh, like I said in the intro, that it is a one person probably single-handedly uh, altered the, the course of Canadian law, and as a result, probably thousands of women's lives. Yes, I, I think he deserves a bigger park or a street, you're right, but um, yes, I mean, I, I, I have been asked. Uh, is there any other uh, similar memorial to him in Canada? And I, as far as I know, there isn't. So, um, and I think for obvious reasons, um, it's still such a controversial issue. I, I, it just amazes me that it doesn't go away. Um, I remember when my father was offered uh, an honorary degree at Western and um, there was such an outcry and uh, donors to the university withdrew their money. And you would think, I don't know. And the same thing when he was, uh, there was a campaign to get him the Order of Canada, which he really wanted. Uh, he wanted that very badly. Um, and again, you know, it was um, a lot, a lot of pushback. Were you aware just as a closing thing, I've always been wondering, um, was he or you uh, or the family aware that there was uh, a band, a Canadian, a Montreal band that had some fame uh, called Me Mom and Morgenthaler? Yes, and I, I remember seeing cartoons about that too. Okay. Um, and there was there was a wonderful cartoon in the Gazette 
um, by Aislinn, I think, um, when uh, Drapeau overspent on the uh, Montreal Olympics, and uh, he had promised that he would he would no more overspend. Oh, I remember this Olympics cartoon very well. A man would have could have a baby. And there's a cartoon with him holding a phone saying, Morgenthaler. <laughs> Goldie Morgenthaler, thank you so much for joining us and uh, come back anytime we can gladly speak about <laughs> okay. anything else. Um, you can find uh, links to what we spoke about on the sh- in the show notes and please do email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. I had the chance to have a uh, conversation with Rabbi Daniel Korobkin this week about uh, what Judaism does have to say about uh, abortion. Here it is. Rabbi Korobkin, how are you? Good. Thank God. How are you, Ravavi? Doing very well. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I want to start uh, the discussion just by acknowledging that we are two men and we're discussing an issue that is really about the lives of women. And there are women scholars, uh, but I wanted to, and that are great women scholars. I wanted to bring you on because there are entire communities uh, that want to hear these discussions being done by male rabbis, and I want them to hear and absorb these issues uh, as best a way as possible um, and remove whatever barriers that are there. But I, I do think it's important to acknowledge that um, that having these discussions without women present because we are talking about them is, you know, you know, something that we have to, to be aware of. But first, can you just maybe give us an overview of how halacha approaches abortion in general? Uh, okay. Um, like most things in halacha, uh, especially something as as life-altering uh, as uh, abortion is concerned, um, it's really uh, there's a, it's a source of controversy. There are different opinions as to when a uh, when a fetus is considered an, an independent life and when it's not. And it, there's not, as a matter of fact, there is not consensus as to whether this is a binary issue either. It's not either that this is a life or it's not a life. Most of the halachic decisors opine that an unborn fetus has some status of being an independent life, but is not a full-fledged life. So for example, even Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who in the 20th century wrote several responsa on abortion, and he came down very stringently in his language and he called it murder, but no, even Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was not suggesting that it is a capital offense of murder, but rather it is the taking of a life, which is a form of murder. It's not the same thing as just uh, destroying tissue. It's the taking of a life, but it doesn't rise to the same level as taking a life of someone who has already emerged from the womb. There are other opinions from other halachic decisors. Uh, the most oft quoted is Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg of the Tzitz Eliezer, who also was a 20th century decisor, who, who uh, agrees that abortion on demand is something that is halachically not permitted, but at the same time is not permitted to call it, is not prepared to call it murder, but says that it is nevertheless a prohibition. Um, of course, there are other considerations that would mitigate that prohibition. So, for example, uh, we would never say that the unborn child's life takes priority over the mother's life. In, 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 uh, according to everybody, that would be the case. Everyone would agree. All rabbis uh, uh, have arrived at the same consensus from looking at the sources 
that whenever the, the mother's life is being threatened by carrying the pregnancy, then it is a mitzvah to terminate the pregnancy in order, in order to preserve the mother's life. You then get into different nuances of what is considered to be a threat to a woman's life. Is Can you give well, us some sure. examples of that? What, what, if, uh, what if a woman is a victim of rape and she's a young lady and she will be so traumatized by, uh, by uh, bringing the baby to full term and giving birth and she may be ostracized and she may be stigmatized for the rest of her life and she may suffer mental illness repercussions because of that trauma that would certainly be taken into consideration by someone who was weighing the halachic um, uh, issues as to whether to permit or not to permit an abortion. And that's why um, anytime these kinds of tragic situations arise, um, uh, we always recommend that the, the, the people in question go to ask an individual, what we call a shayla or a she'ila, to their rabbinic decisor so that all of the considerations can be provided to the person who is asked to provide their expert opinion. What about, for example, what would some of the halakhic authorities say uh, about a mother who has 10 children and, uh, you know, they're blessed with another child, but but she is really not ready for this. She, she's had enough. She's at the end of her rope. She knows that she can't afford another mouth to feed. And it's, it's incredibly difficult. And it's going to traumatize her psychologically to know that she has to go through this yet again. Right. Would you find maybe some halachic authorities that would say that this might be cause for 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 uh, terminating a pregnancy, especially early on um, before anybody finds out about it? Right. When she can still, uh, you know, uh, make that decision. Right. I mean, I, I will tell you, I don't like speaking in hypotheticals. So let me tell you about a real life situation, please. Um, a few years ago, uh, a young mother who already had four young children came to me and told me that she was pregnant Um and that this was completely unplanned, and she and her husband thought that they were using adequate protection to prevent another pregnancy. She was extremely distraught, and she wanted to ask me what her options were as far as terminating the pregnancy. And by the end of the conversation, and I was not in any way putting any pressure on her, it was really just a question of asking her questions and giving her the opportunity to speak out the, um, the very traumatic experience that she was now currently undergoing by realizing that she was pregnant when she was completely overwhelmed in her life by raising her children currently. And one of the considerations that I said is, this is I, I think that this is something that your husband has equal input, or at least some input, if not equal input, in making the decision. Have you spoken about it with him? And that was one of the considerations. But I think what in, in the long run, she ended going through with the pregnancy and they now have a fifth child who is by now a few, a few years old already. And I believe they're very, very happy with their decision to keep the child. But I think that mostly she wanted to know, and which is what I concluded with the discussion, that I would accept um, whatever decision she made. It was her decision to make. And I would respect whatever, uh, whatever she, she went with. And I think she needed that reassurance that she would not be viewed as a pariah, she would not be condemned by doing this. And then once she had that information, she weighed it carefully in her mind, and she and her husband collectively decided that they were capable of going through with it. So 
you used some language earlier, um, just a, a couple of minutes ago, and I think that what you're saying is really fascinating. Um, but the idea of like the on-demand abortion, right? And I hear this a lot from a lot of uh, anti-abortion activists, and it's part of the language that there are women that are going to use this as birth control almost, right? That there's going to be poor choices that women are going to be made making, and that if they know that, you know, there is a uh, an option to terminate a pregnancy, um, they don't have to worry about things as much, and that that's part of the issue, right? I can't help but see similarities to that type of discussion um, between an earlier debate within Judaism, right, in the past 100 years or so, even 50 years, right, around women and Torah study, wearing tefillin and things like that, where you have a lot of halakhic authorities that say, you know, technically it's okay, but we're afraid that women are doing this for the wrong reasons, you know, for because they're, they're feminists, and, and they're Therefore, we're going to forbid it. And that really hasn't proven itself to be true, right? We see that for the most part, women want to learn Torah. They want to be serious scholars because they love Torah and Judaism, right? That Judaism has been, you know, enriched by them, right? And why can't we trust women to say when they need an abortion that they really do need an abortion, that they should be coming to rabbis potentially to, to help discuss the issue, to understand what's going on. But when a woman assumes to uh, it, it, that she is coming and saying, I would like this, that she knows the seriousness of what is happening and that she wants to go through with it nevertheless, um, that that is something to be believed. And we should take that step back to assume that mo that there is this big demand or this this whole uh, industry of on-demand abortions of people making you know poor choices. Well, on-demand abortion does not mean that a person is making a poor choice. I, and, I know. And yeah. So I, 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 you know, I fail to see the analogy to, uh, to, to, to the idea of women wearing tefillin because the, the worst that the, the worst thing that happens when a woman puts on a pair of tefillin, even if it's not halachically sanctioned, is that she did something by attaching herself to something holy, a holy artifact. Whether or not there's technical minutia that would preclude her from doing that or not is a very, very narrow discussion in halacha. And, sure. and, the, and the stakes and the stakes are not very high. Here you're dealing with a human life. For sure. But what I'm trying to say is that we are, we're at a point where we are learning to trust women. When they say, for example, I want to learn Torah, not because I'm a feminist and because men can do it, I want to be able to do it. Or I want to put on tefillin, not because uh, I'm not, I've never been allowed and I want to do it. And We trust them that when they're doing these types of mitzvot, and maybe not tefillin in the Orthodox community, but, but definitely full-time Torah study for a lot of women or part-time Torah study, uh, becoming a scholar, right? We have Yoetzot Halacha. We believe that they're doing it for the right reason. And we trust them. And we have learned as a halachic society to trust women when they say that when they want to do something, they're doing it. And I'm trying to make that analogy to this also, to not to say that, you know, we are permitting everything, whatever it is, but when somebody comes, right, I, I guess th this language that's used now, I, I remember hearing this from a scholar in New Jersey, uh, Dr. Michal Raucher, um, uh, who talks about the justification approach, right, that you, uh, you still need to prove that you need an abortion. Right to a to a group of you know halachic deciders, and I think that if a woman comes to a rabbi and says I need an abortion, um, the weighing of it should be minimized. We should assume right. Okay, great. You need an abortion. This is what halacha has to say about abortion. I'm not going to ask you necessarily the specifics, but I'm going to trust that you are going to uh, make the right decision the way that you were just talking about this woman. And some women will make the the, the reverse decision, right? And they will think that I mean, that's I'm, the right I'm, decision. I'm, I'm well. a little yeah. bit um, I'm I'm taken aback by your by the way that you're characterizing it, this is not about trust in women or lack of trust in women. This has nothing to do with feminism or a lack of feminism. This has to do with an issue where the stakes are that a fetus may be considered a human life. If my, if my wife sure, came but to, to me assume, one day... To assume on, that the on, woman... Yeah, on, go ahead. Hold on, hold on a second. If my wife came to me one day and said, 
our five-year-old child is just intolerable. I can't tolerate this child anymore. He is a menace to the house. He is making my life a living hell. I think we should terminate our five-year-old child. Should I then turn around to my wife and say, well, sweetheart, I trust you. You spend most of the time of the day with our five-year-old. If you feel that that's the only alternative for you, I'm not going to uh, judge you or condescendingly um, try to mansplain things to you. It's your decision. Of course not. That, because it, the child it, is a child it, and has autonomy, it, right? Because they're protected. But as a fetus, it, it is different. It, and that's the issue. That's the halachic issue that is being discussed. Mm -hmm. does, does an I unborn hear. fetus have protection under the law? And according to most authorities, yes, unless the mother's life is threatened. That's the issue. Yeah, and I think that if... If the mother comes and asks, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if the mother comes and asks halakhically, right, goes to a rabbi and says, I would like an abortion, we should automatically assume that she's making that statement knowing that her life is going to be severely altered if she went through she is not the only not, person. Yeah. She is not the only person whose life is affected by this abortion. The husband's life is affected and the unborn fetus's life is affected. And so therefore, this is not an autonomous decision where it's only her body. By by making that argument, you're already showing your cards that you've bought into that argument that it's completely a woman's body. But that's exactly so I don't believe in that. Debate revolves around to what degree is fetal tissue a part of her body or not a part of her body. I actually I, I'm with you on that issue. I, I really I, I recognize and I accept that halacha does not under, does not believe in this idea of bodily autonomy. For example, the halacha says that you can't get a tattoo, right? You can't you can't say this is my body and I choose to do it. I mean, can't is a is a tough question. We can do it, right? But it, your halacha says if you want to be following all these halachot, this is not your body in that way, and you cannot get a tattoo. You cannot terminate your own life. Even you go and say, I have autonomy, I should be able to do this. So, so I do think that halakha does have constraints on bodily autonomy. Um, I just think that when, I guess what I'm trying to say, and I'm, uh, and maybe there, there's a pushback here, and that's fine. I think we can agree to have a difference here that, um, that it, when a woman comes and asks um, a Shaila to terminate a pregnancy, we should automatically assume that she knows that she's doing this out of pikuach nefesh. The same way that we know that a woman who wants to learn Torah now is doing it, um, you know, lishma for the right reasons, l'shem shemayim, because she wants to, you know, study Torah and not because it's some, you know, feminist reactionary sort of thing. When a woman comes, she knows that it's a pikuach nefesh. And yes, we should absolutely take into consideration the husband's um, decisions uh, and we should take the halachic decisions and she should be informed of these things. But ultimately, we have to weigh heavily the idea that as soon as a question like this is asked, it must mean that there's a, a, a question of pikuach nefesh on there. Um, but I guess uh, I, we I can would disagree about that. That's fine. I would have to. I would have to respectfully disagree as someone who deals with real life she'ilot. Yeah, and I don't. On, so on, that's on why I brought you on. On a, on a constant basis, I can tell you that there are many instances where people feel that something is an issue of pikuach nefesh when it's not, and there are equally a number of cases where someone feels that it's not pikuach nefesh when it is. There are times when I have to uh, uh, yell at a, at, at a congregant to violate Shabbos Absolutely. because, because yeah. there's an issue of pikuach nefesh involved and they don't want to hear of it. Or I have to I have to yell at them to, to eat on Yom Kippur, Kippur because, absolutely. They're because they're a diabetic and they have to preserve their life. I think what you're saying, and I like this, is that the role of the rabbi is to inform them what does it mean that the life is in danger and what are the various things to weigh um, and the factors to weigh, um, but to, 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 to ultimately help them make those decisions for themselves. 
Um, Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to take just a, a, a brief different direction, um, and because it's it's related, but I you know I'm always been curious, right? When we see this uh, debate happen in the public sphere, um, right, that there are a lot of Jews, right, especially a lot of Orthodox Jews and not necessarily communities. I'm not uh, painting communities with a broad brush, but there are definitely a lot of individuals who um, want abortion to be restricted legally, right, whether in Canada or in the U.S. or other countries. Um, and, you know, they're definitely, I find, I find it interesting because there's so many examples that I can think of, uh, not so many, but there are definitely examples that I can think of um, where Jews uh, think that this is a value and we don't seek to make these values secular law, right? We don't advocate for adultery to be criminalized. We don't ad- want to use our definitions of theft in order to make those legal. We assume that these are our values and that society in general will make those, will bend to those values. And I just am curious why in why do you think in this sphere so many Jews have become activists um, in this regard when we're not necessarily looking um, to bring our other values into general society? Okay, so there's I guess there's a couple of things here. First of all, I am not I have not noted a number of Jewish activists as you claim. If anything, I'm seeing a lot of um, a hesitancy and vacillation and and really trying to be circumspect on this issue. The fact is, if you look at the Orthodox Union's, the OU statement on the leaked memo, they said, we, remember the language. we can neither condemn nor celebrate what is, what, is, what is being proposed to overturn Roe versus Wade, the 1973 landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, specifically for the reason that, and they do identify abortion on demand as something that halacha does not, per, does not permit, and that because the stakes are so high, uh, it, it leads to a slippery slope of society treating life in general in a very cavalier way. But on the other hand, to completely ban abortion would be equally wrong because there are, there's a minority of situations when it's not only permitted to perform an abortion, but it's a mitzvah to perform an abortion. Now, granted, what is being discussed in the United States presently is not to ban abortion, but rather to leave it up to the individual 50 states to decide how they will legislate abortion laws in the states. And it's not, again, that's not a binary issue. That's an issue of, let's see, um, will we permit a late-term abortion? Will we only permit abortion up until three months? Will we permit, ab- you know, so every, what's, what's being put on the table now is that a woman living in the United States will always be able to have access to abortion, but it may require her to travel across state lines. I'm not saying whether that's Which I'm not saying whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not I'm, I'm not okay. advocating for one way or the other, but I want to make sure that we're clear on what is being put on the table at present. So then let me ask you as a as a constraining question then do you think that Jews should sit this one out and be on the sidelines and say this is not really our discussion and our values um, don't necessarily need to come into the public sphere? Do you think that we should have a voice in this? I think I think our mandate as a nation is to be a light unto the nations. And we always have something that we can contribute when it comes to and ethical, ethical or moral issues facing society. So for us to put our heads in the sand and say, it's not clear, so we're not going to opine on it, would be a shirking of our duty as the, as the Jewish people. What we should do is present nuanced responses in the way that the OU has done, and let society know that Judaism has what to say on the matter, but that it's nuanced. And it's not, it's not a clear-cut issue that abortion is either good or bad, legal or illegal, 
But one has to be able to recognize that wholesale, you know, uh, uh, abortion that's based on, again, the term abortion on demand is not something that is healthy for society because it will lead to other forms of, uh, of life ending uh, permissibilities like euthanasia uh, and, uh, and suicide and things like that. But at the same time, to completely ban it in the way that perhaps another religious group might want to do would also not be correct. I don't think there's anything wrong with the Jewish community voicing its opinion. We are supposed to be a light unto the nations, and it is appropriate for us to voice our opinion. Excellent. Well, um, very well said. I think we, 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 we figured out that we agree to disagree on what, what those limits are, but I think I, I like being that voice, but not necessarily to, to push that forward. Um, Rabbi Korupkin, it's always a pleasure to have you. And when we get to these end-of-life issues, uh, we'll definitely have you back on to discuss um, how society should deal with those things. Call out Kavod Rav Feingold, Rav Avi. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank Talk you. to you soon. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, We've just heard two men talking back and forth for the past 20 minutes. So while I do have lots of opinions, I would love to hear what our female host has to say. Well, you're really putting me on the spot there. I mean, I think we talked about it a bit in our first interview with Goldie that it really depends on your Jewish perspective. I know for me, I'm very much pro-choice. Um, and I think it gets complicated, I guess, if you're trying to like parse out the halacha when it's not so clear. Um, now that you're not in a conversation with a, another rabbi, Avi, do you have anything you didn't bring up in your conversation that you want to add? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that we're in a tough situation here um, where um, I, I recognize that a lot of Orthodox Jews tend to follow Right, rightfully or wrongfully, um, the Christian right on a lot of these issues. Mm. And they feel kind of stuck because on the one hand, they don't want their right to terminate abortion when halacha not only permits it, but mandates it um, taken away. They also want to signal their conservative approach. And I feel like I don't necessarily feel sympathy for them, but I realize that they're in a tough place and they're kind of stuck here. Um, and that's where it is, because at the end of the day, I do recognize that it is a tough decision to make. But as I spoke about in the conversation, I think that we should trust women when they make those choices. And it shouldn't necessarily be about, you know, how that, um, you know, how that choice comes up. Yeah. To me, the biggest takeaway from this interview was that I think the difficulty of asking whether one should have an abortion uh, is not to be discounted, right? I, I recognize that often one doesn't have enough information to make this informed Jewish decision on the matter, right? Or 100%. on many matters. And that's why people ask questions of rabbis, right? But I also think that having to explain and to justify your choice is difficult and it can be traumatic, right? And that's why I think I keep coming back to trusting this yeah. woman, right? Maybe she should be going to a rabbi to ask what the parameters are, uh, but rabbis need to be sensitive about this and they have to recognize that this language of abortion on demand is damaging and that the vast majority of women don't take this decision lightly. Yeah. I think that that's just this straw man and this like artificial construct that um, people who are anti-abortion want to put up there to sort of say, oh, if we do this, then, you know, women are going to just going to sit there and be promiscuous. And I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think we have to be moving that language towards is to sort of say, yes, Halakha doesn't take this decision lightly, but neither do the women. I mean, I think the thing that stood out for me in that interview, you know, where the rabbi was going on saying the husband's life is just as affected as the woman who is who's in in need of this abortion. I was like, 
what do you mean it's just as effective? This is a woman who is going through not only the physical turmoil, but the emotional stress of deciding whether to abort or not abort this child. I don't think the husband's life, I don't think we need to take yeah. into account an equal amount. Yes, this husband will be affected by this somewhat emotionally, but it's the woman's life who is struggling with this so much more deeply sure. than I don't think we need to value both at the same time equally. Yeah, I have to say that that was one of the things that like really bothered me, I guess, in, in right. some of his responses was when he was saying like, did the woman check in with her husband to see whether he wants to abort the baby? But like, and I get it, you know, when you're in a couple, like you do make decisions together and it's not to be taken lightly, but it is the right. woman's body. And I totally agree with what both of you are saying. It's um, not something that should, you know, the man shouldn't be deciding what the woman is going to do it's he's not the one having the baby is really what it comes down to yeah but i think that um that is where i i I have some sympathy for this because halakha does recognize that um the mother is holding the genetic material of of somebody else as well and he has some say in this and if they are in a relationship yeah i didn't say no say if they if they're in a relationship and if they are dialoguing in a relationship it's not like this is you know something that comes out of the blue um, and they, yeah. they have a great relationship, then I think a rabbi would want to steer them towards having this discussion and for the woman to have um, to weigh some of the decisions that her partner and, mm-hmm. and points of view that her partner wants to have. I don't think that that's, um, you know, entirely right, as you said, uh, but I think that the husband does have some sort of, not say, but some sort of, you know, a vote, but not a veto, as, as some people like to put it. Um, and I think that that that's where I do align myself a little bit with halakha because not necessarily in the case of, you know, a rape or, uh, you know, something that is, um, you know, incest, incest or, or, or a case where, you know, this was, you know, completely, you know, th- th- there was some issue going on here. But in the case where a couple, you know, um, may have accidentally had a child or a couple that wanted to have a child, turns out that the baby has some sort of physical um, defect. And the husband says, you know what, I, we're going to make this work. And I want you to know that I'm going to support you all the way. And the woman says, well, that might be difficult for me, but they should have a dialogue about that. And I think that that is something there. And I think that al does not sure. necessarily go and say that the woman's right to choose is paramount, right? I, as I said in the, in the, you know, in the conversation that um, I don't think that Halakha really believes in this conversation around bodily autonomy. I don't mm. think that um, Halakha goes and says, it's your body, you get to do whatever you want with it. Because Halakha is saying your body belongs to God. Or just that there's, you know, that there's rights, there's responsibilities, exactly the same way that, and again, you're free to do whatever you want, right? I have a friend who used to say, like, when, who, who used to be religious, and he used to, when people were in that Shabbat table, and says, well, like, he was turning on a light, he goes, you can't do that. And he goes, I can't? Really? Watch me. And he would start <laughs> flicking the light switch on and off. He goes, you, I, you, people choose not to, mm-hmm. but I can. And the same thing is true when it comes to halakha around your body, that there's things that we can, that we should or should not do if you choose to accept halakha upon yourself. Um, but it's not necessarily the right of the state to legislate around that. You should be free to make a choice and, you know, and that's it. And, um, but, but halakha does have something to say about your body if we do look at it in that sort of sense. And, and halakha will go and say that um, the woman has some say, Absolutely, but not necessarily always in every situation um, if she wants to be following halakha to have the final last word on that. I mean, I don't think that's good enough for me because you're talking about 
this woman who's under pressure and then the husband is coming into this situation adding pressure this rabbi is adding pressure i really wonder then what is this woman truly being led into if everyone is saying ah but halacha says this and your husband is saying this and the rabbi saying this it's an impossible situation to to win i think the situation is is about being sensitive and you're a hundred percent right about the sensitivity that needs to be um thought of and included there um but ultimately you know if you choose to accept this halachic system, you go to a rabbi to have these discussions. And again, that is where the sensitivity has to come in and to be able to mm-hmm. say, no, right? I'm not going to push you one way or another. I'm going to tell you what the halacha and the different opinions about this are if you believe in a halachic framework. And I'm going to let you make those decisions for yourself. I don't even think uh, I'm in a place where I'm thinking to myself, if a woman goes and asks this question, she shouldn't even... Um, uh, need to disclose what the parameters are. A rabbi can go and give her the framework for everything, and she should be able to say, I don't need to disclose the situation around mm-hmm. this. I'm going to try to figure this out for myself. Yeah. Totally. I mean, uh, just to kind of make sure that my point earlier was clear, that I do appreciate, too, from your interview, that the rabbi was sensitive around issues like rape um, and those types of unwanted pregnancies because you don't really see that in in the right sides of Christianity, for example. So as long as there there are distinctions, um, at least that becomes more black and white. And the rest, like you said, Avi, is more up to the person to disclose in the same way that um, a victim of rape shouldn't have to go through the trauma of telling like 300 people what they went through just to be believed and i think it should apply to this too and trusting that the woman um, is going to share what she's comfortable with and now it's time for our nachos of the week where we talk about what's making us feel good and what's on our radar and jewish over the past week Alana, what's your nachos of the week? So on May 8th, the Czech-Canadian Jewish singer Lenka Lichtenberg released an album where she took the poems of her grandmother, who was a survivor in the Theresienstadt concentration camp, translated them into Czech and English, and then turned them into songs. And the album was actually released on the 77th anniversary of the liberation of Theresienstadt. Uh, so the album is called Thieves of Dreams by Lenka Lichtenberg, and I suggest that you check it out. Beautiful. Uh, David, what's your Nachos of the Week? It's going to go to um, my Bubby, Bubby Lila. So Friday morning, I found out that Bubby Lila passed away. I came to Montreal for her funeral, and it was a lovely, uh, it was a lovely funeral. Um, all our families, my distant family, who I hadn't seen in many years, we got together and celebrated her life. And Bubby Lila was an intelligent, strong, and independent woman, and all my family will greatly miss her. Pamatuj, 
My Nachas this week, it goes out to a colleague of mine who um, has been doing a wonderful substack that I think you should check out, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, um, who has been uh, in the news uh, the past week or so simply because she is the uh, scholar-in-residence, in addition to doing many other things and is a great author, uh, is the scholar-in-residence for the National Council of Jewish Women, and she is organizing a Jewish rally for abortion justice in the U.S. this Tuesday May 17th. Um, but she has this wonderful substack called Life is a Sacred Text, um, which we will put a link to in the show notes. It's basically her uh, Torah commentary, which she puts out once a week. And she goes through the Torah portions. And it's not, uh, it started in the middle, and it's not quite at the Torah portion of the week. And she just decides to like write as it is. I don't always agree with her. I don't always agree with her point of view. But I think that she always is interesting and articulate and funny and a great writer. And so you should check out Life is a Sacred Text by Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of Friday, May 13th, Shabbat Parashat Emor. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Bonjour Chai, please do share it with a friend. We're sure they will enjoy it, too. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. This episode has been brought to you by Looking Back, Moving Forward, 160 Years of Jewish Life in B.C., Published by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia for their 50th anniversary, this elegant volume is a once-in-a-generation collection of Jewish life and history throughout the province. Order your copy today at jewishmuseum.ca.